This is episode 314 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life so you can love your people, get prepared, and live free. Today's articles are Things You Need to Survive in Hostile Regions and How to Supplement Your Potable Water Supplies by Cheaply Harvesting Rainwater. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey everyone, before we get started, I want to let you know that this episode is sponsored by my new ebook, The Preparedness Community's Guide to a Microbiz and Increasing Your Finances. If you want to get some more information about that ebook, you can go to microbiz.biz. I also have a link in the show notes as well. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into our first article. It comes to us from PreppersWill.com. And this article is entitled, Things You Need to Survive in Hostile Regions. And the article comes uh, you know, from the point of view, like if you're going to a foreign country, but there's just a lot of other good information here. So you can really apply in a lot of different areas. So I think it's good. And so let's go ahead and jump right into it. When traveling to foreign countries, there's always the risk of things taking a turn for the worst. With the ever-increasing surge of terrorism and international drug cartels, you never know how you may end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Personal protection is a necessity for Westerners who work or vacation abroad, that of course if they want to survive in hostile regions. I've traveled a lot around the world providing protection and training for clients working in hostile regions. I've also had the pleasure to work with quite a few experts and attend to various counter-abduction courses and escape and evasion classes. Every time I find myself in a country that seems like a poop hole, there are some precautions I need to make and I always make sure I have some vital items. However, before we start listing things that should be a must for you in a hostile region, we should establish if your destination could be classified as a sketchy country. There are a few things you should ask yourself before buying the tickets and boarding the plane. Here is my ABC for safe traveling. A. Is by any chance the government of the country you plan on traveling to tyrannical? Are they oppressing people based on their beliefs or gender? B. Are the army and the police the same thing, or are they two separate entities? In some countries, especially in communist ones, there is not a clear distinction between the army and the police. And C. Does the region in which you will be staying have a noticeable problem with people being assaulted or kidnapped? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, then we can both agree that the region you plan on visiting is hostile. It can range from anything such as, let's rob this gringo to slay the infidel. If you still have to go there, you should need prepare accordingly. However, I must warn you that not even with all the preparation in the world, your trip is still a roll of the dice regarding personal security and survival. My initial advice would be to avoid such places, but if that's not possible, here are a list of things you must have for hostile regions. Hostile regions requirements. Number one, a trained travel buddy. If you are required to travel to hostile regions, you should make sure you have a trained companion coming along. This is one of the best ways to minimize your risk of getting kidnapped or worst when going abroad. I've often traveled with someone who knows the region 
knows how to defend himself and others and has access to needed resources. If things take a turn for the worst, you should have the peace of mind that your companion knows how to fight and fight well. You need to travel with someone who has your back. Otherwise, you might as well be traveling alone. The good thing is that some companies do offer this type of protection and they won't let their employees go in hostile regions by themselves. And guys, I'm going to just tell you right now, there are some uh, sentences that I am changing just to kind of keep this clean uh, for just in case you have, uh, you know, kids listening to this podcast. So just FYI on that one. All right. Number two is hand to hand weapons. And most kid, <laughs> and I got to tell you, uh, so there was, uh, and you're not going to hear it because I'm going to edit it out, but uh, there was just a sentence that I was reading and I forgot that it was there. And uh, boy, I just kept reading right along. I'm like, oh, can't do that one. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back and edit that one. So uh, yeah, so you won't hear it, but if you want to go check out this, this article, like always, I'm going to have uh, the article linked in the show notes. All right, so going back to number two, hand-to-hand weapons. In most kidnap cases, the enemy has the element of surprise, and that's why the success rate of such action is high in most third world countries. The best thing you could do would be to surprise them back by having some combat training or a hidden weapon. Some self-defense tools can pass through most security checkpoints without a problem. My personal favorites are the self-defense rings, available in all kinds of shapes and designs. These small tools can make serious piercing and tearing damage, and the best thing is that it's always on your hand. Whatever your option is, make sure the item you carry doesn't look scary since it will ruin the element of surprise. The local laws may not be so permissive about hand-to-hand weapons, but an inconspicuous ring won't raise any eyebrows. All right, so guys, uh, on this one right here, the the self-defense rings, there is a link there. And the one that he is linking to actually does have, I know that here in the article he's talking about the piercing and all that kind of stuff. These do have, you know, it looks like if you really punch someone hard with it, they would have puncture holes uh, in them. But there are other ones like that are titanium. And it, and basically, it's if you can think of it, because I've been looking into this, they're kind of like brass knuckles without being, the, like you, you don't put all of your knuckles into it. So you would only put, it's like one ring, but... Um, the way that you would hold it, I mean, the way if you punch somebody with it, you would do a lot of damage. Now, in uh, I, I know that here he said that you know you could go through uh, security checkpoints with it. I don't know if he's referring to actual like uh, you know TSA or airports or, or whatever on that. I know that one of the rings that I was looking at, uh, the recommendation was yeah I would not go through or try to go through a TSA checkpoint with this because they will take that from you. So, uh, you know, you need to take that into consideration. And then in some places, they might be considered as brass knuckles and might be illegal for you to have. So just something, you know, FYI for you, because I have been looking into it. There's one that I have my eye on it, on Amazon that I, that I, you know, I think it would be a good one to have. But I am also going to look into it a little bit more here for my area and see if that is something that would be illegal to to, to hold or to carry or whatever. And uh, you know, it's one thing if if you're using it and you get in trouble for using it. I I can't see a real cop, um, you know, really really 
giving you static for defending yourself with something like that, as opposed to maybe you're just stopped and they they you know you have it on you, and that might that might look they might look at that as as uh, you know a, a lot differently uh, if you just had it on you. So I don't know. Uh, I'm not an expert in that, and that's why one reason why I want to look that up a little bit more. Uh, number three, access to firearms. If you can legally obtain a gun, you should do that immediately. In some countries, it may be difficult to do so or even impossible if you go on the legal path. However, if you find yourself in a country where entire cities erupt in violence and bullets start flying as the government is being overthrown, you should have some options. The best thing you could do is develop a relationship with the locals so that they can provide you with the needed firepower in cases needed. From personal experience, I can tell you that in Africa and a few East European countries was the easiest for me to develop relationships with various individuals that could get me and my team members the weapons we would need in a couple of hours. In Ukraine, I could get a few AK-47s in less than two hours. Number four is satellite phone. In certain hostile regions, cell coverage is basic at best and you will be cut out from the world if you don't have any other option. Me and my team, we always carry an Iridium satellite phone that we use in emergencies. These phones are not cheap, but they can save your behind when things get sticky. A good satellite phone will set you back about $1,000, and a prepaid SIM card with 60 minutes or more can be bought for $100. Think about it as your lifeline because I can assure you that in certain areas overseas, your phone may not have service. Number five a tough smartphone. Forget about the shiny new iPhone and get yourself a sturdy smartphone that can handle abuse. You need something that is dustproof, waterproof, and can survive a high fall. There are certain smartphone models designed for rough areas and hard working conditions. These are the ones you should target if you plan to go into a hostile region. These types of phones have all the apps and tech capabilities of the stylish models, but they are much sturdier and their battery lasts longer. And so I would also recommend, you know, we pay so much money for the newer smartphones, you know, uh, and, and I'm, I'm one of those that wears my smartphone out. I mean, some people will have two or three smartphones and, and, you know, while well, I'm still on one, right. But uh, one of the things that I do is I try to invest in a good case that will protect it if it falls you know now a lot of the times unless you have uh, a case that has the the cover um you know covering the 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 face or the screen if it lands and this has happened to me before if it just lands just perfectly like out on the parking lot and uh, it lands right on a rock and there's nothing you can do the the face or the screen lands right on a rock and there's nothing that's going to be able to protect it from that uh especially if you have a, a touch screen uh, you need to be able to to touch that screen right um, there's you know shock absorbent uh, screen savers and different things like that, but they just don't always seem to work very well, and you can't find them for every single phone. But if you can, you know, and you have one of those uh, more expensive phones, you might want to just invest in it. Uh, it's definitely well worth it, but also you want to ruggedize it as much as possible. All right, number six is a decoy wallet. I teach my clients to carry a decoy wallet in their front left pant pocket with fake IDs and petty cash for bribes. If you get robbed, you will give them the decoy wallet without losing precious resources like your passport or cash reserve. Some people prefer to carry decoy wallets that are shiny and made from nickel or other materials that have a distracting feature. 
These are designed to catch the eye of the thief so that you can apply a good sucker punch or kick. However, there's no point in escalating the situation if you are not properly trained to defend yourself. And I will add on the the wallet there. If if even if you're not you know you're not going into hostile territories or whatever, um, it's always smart to keep your wallet in your front pocket. Uh, not only just from the standpoint of when you sit down, it can jack with your back and all that kind of stuff, but just for protection. It's a lot harder to grab something out of your front pocket than it is your back pocket. Okay, number seven is covert safe. In 2011, I had to babysit an IT manager in South Africa, and we often had to stay in regions that were not on the safe zone map. He was suffering from a serious medical condition, and he was afraid of losing his medication that he brought up from the States. The guy was constantly worrying about it being stolen from the hotel, from his bag, and so on. He managed to calm down only after I gave him a covert safe a can of shaving cream with a hidden compartment that could house his pills and ease his worries. These small covert safes are ideal to keep valuables and thieves won't be lured by these common looking objects. They will never pay attention to those items and they will look in places where people are usually hiding their valuables like under a mattress or under the drawers and other common places. And guys, I will tell you, you can make your own with, uh, you know, cans of soup and different things like that. Uh, You can, you know, there's different uh, like hacks that you can find online and uh, make your own there. Number eight is a solar panel. In most underdeveloped countries, communication is the first thing that fails you and it's something you need to prepare for. Your sat phone battery may die and all your other gear that operates on electricity may go to sleep. However, the sun will never fail you and it will recharge your devices if you have the right equipment. I recommend leaving behind rigid panels since they are too bulky to assure proper mobility and they are also prone to damage. Getting something flexible like the Bushnell Solar Wrap since this charger can roll up in a compact tube and you can wear it anywhere without having to worry about it breaking. Number nine is money alternatives. Although anyone in the world may accept U.S. dollars, there could also be exceptions. You may not find an exchange office or you may be forced to use local currency to avoid being charged with doing black marketing. Always change your money at authorized offices of exchange and avoid private money changers at popular landmarks, hotels, and other points of interest. However, if by any chance you are left without any cash and the plastic card becomes useless, you should have some alternative method of payment. Jewels and other valuables can be traded for goods or services or pawned as a last resort. Even some of the gear you have can be traded for money. Water filters were seen as high-tech, priceless things in Africa, and I often had people offering to buy my water filter and water canteen. I have some colleagues who did some protection work in Afghanistan and they used to give fidget spinners and all sorts of flashy, cheap toys to kids to obtain information. In exchange for these small bribes, they were able to obtain various information like who was running the village, if the water is potable, if there are bad people with guns in the area, and so on. Anything can become a bartering chip if you're in the right or wrong place. Good, good, um recommendation there especially with the water filters uh you you know we take it for granted and you know you get a life straw for 19.99 you can get a sawyer mini water filter for you know 24 to anywhere from you know 18 19 24 29 and uh, man you know how valuable would it be to have a couple of extra ones just kind of socked away and being able to trade that off 
Number 10 is local knowledge. Before you go to hostile regions, make sure you learn a thing or two about the region. We always did our homework and we tried to learn as much as possible about the locals, their culture and habits. Each country has its own moral code and rules you need to follow. Surviving abroad requires for you to learn what is and what is not acceptable behavior. Do a little review and save yourself the later embarrassment or even worse. Learn at least about the basics to prevent the patently offensive behavior. If you want to avoid paying extra for services or attracting unwanted attention, get robbed or even worse, try to dress like the ordinary locals. Even more, you can wear whatever foreigners who live in the locale are wearing. This helps you traveling light as well as in convincing others you're not new to the place. The top five items listed in this article are a must if you travel to hostile regions and the others are more or less equally important to stay safe when traveling abroad. If your company doesn't offer proper protection, you are entitled to decline the task of living and working in a hostile region. You should request to be accompanied by a trained companion and make your own safety net. As you saw in this article, most of the suggestions listed here can be employed by anyone. Great uh, suggestions here. You know, I had a, uh, a teaching partner who, whose husband worked for you know, security detail and uh, they, they, you know, they lived in a compound in a Middle Eastern country. And, uh, you know, there were some, you know, a lot of security precautions that they put into place. Um, sometimes family members were there living on site. Uh, of course, you know, my, my partner wasn't uh, there. She was teaching with me. But uh, there was other family members there. And there was times where the company would, you know, whatever, they would pull, pull an alarm or, you know, send out word and say, hey, things are kind of getting a little hot. We need to go ahead and uh, evacuate or we, you know, we need to be, uh, you know, have our eyes uh, open and our heads on a swivel because things can get pretty touchy pretty quickly. And so I don't know why anybody would want to have their family there and you know those types of things. Sometimes they felt a little bit more comfortable in a compound, but still you're kind of stuck in a compound. But anyway, I mean, there's people that do that. And uh, you know a lot of a lot of those things, you know, a lot of these things that were mentioned here in the in the article, you know, were put into place. But again, there's some good things here that you can put into place regardless. Uh, if you are going to uh, to a foreign country or just traveling or uh, just you know being situationally aware as you go out there and uh, you know you do your day to day things that you do right and so uh, good information here like always um, there's some links here that you're going to be interested in and I'm going to link to it in the show notes so you can always go to this article over at preperswill.com our next article comes to us from askaprepper.com. And this is one that I believe uh, everyone should really be thinking about. You should have a way to harvest rainwater. Um, I know that in the comments here, they were talking about there are some places where it's illegal. I think that is absolutely stupid. I can't even begin to talk about how stupid that is. But, uh, you know, even if you are in a, a state where it is illegal, if there was a situation where the poop hit the fan. Do you have a means to tie into your gutters very quickly and start harvesting the rainwater? Let's just say, you know, that uh, the police weren't going to be coming around. No one is going to really truly be enforcing the, the rainwater harvesting type deal. You know, is there a way that you can maybe deploy uh, rainwater harvesting? Because you, there's a great possibility that you might need it. 
And so uh, this article, it's, uh, it's not very long, but there's a lot of pictures here of how this person is tying in uh, their gutters to the, the various different containers. And I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of different containers here, uh, different types of uh, uh, containers and things like that. And so, uh, you know, there's some uh, definitely pictures that you might want to uh, take into consideration and come check out. So let's go ahead and get into this one. Uh, again, askaprepper.com. And the, t- the title of the article is How to Supplement Your Potable Water Supplies by Cheaply Harvesting Rainwater. So let's go ahead and start reading. Rainwater. It's free, falls from the sky nearly everywhere, and is relatively pure. Without rainwater, lakes and streams and aquifers would dry up and humans and animals would die or be forced to relocate. That's what is happening in many places around the world today, and our species is probably responsible for these dislocations. I live on the central California coast, and when I first moved here 13 years ago, nearly 13 inches of rain was falling annually. Then a stretch of drought occurred where some years wheat got only 5 to 7 inches or so. Barely enough to keep our coniferous forest alive. Our town of 6,400 was finally forced to ante up millions for a so-called portable desalinization plant. So-called because it is neither exclusively desalinization nor portable. Years before, some were advocating storing water in giant cisterns above or below ground. Water that would be pumped into them from our aquifers. We now have some of those in the town. On a residential level, I had one in Oregon years ago, under the garage floor, pumped in from an intermittent canal. Frogs were living in the cistern and the croaking was freaking out my young son who had a bedroom nearby. Rainfall is something we've often taken for granted, but it is not as reliable as it used to be. Disrupted weather patterns often mean we get more rain than we can use for a short while, then long dry periods when water is in short supply. The obvious solution is to store rainwater when it is plentiful and use it when it is scarce. Being somewhat prophetic, which is a quality that often characterizes preppers, I began developing a homestead-wide rainwater harvesting system several years ago. The water captured would be used to irrigate my quarter-acre property, but could also, in a pinch, be used for cooking, drinking, washing, or flushing toilets. And it's often abundant and free. When I first moved here, I went to a nearby stream, which was sending millions of gallons of rainwater out to sea hourly. I bottled some in a clear plastic PVC gallon container, stored it for a year in a dark closet, and then took a look at it. It was still crystal clear. Presumably, whatever pathogens were once in it were probably gone, but don't quote me on it. Even if any did survive, standard purification techniques will deal with them. I continue to be amazed at how much pure water isn't captured before it goes into the ocean. As a young man, I almost perished from dehydration trying to hike a mile straight up from the Grand Canyon from the Yellowstone River on a very hot day, all because I was too worried the water might contain Giardia. Silly me, it's quite probable that water running over rocks from snowmelt was perfectly fine. Still, I would have uh, filtered that out if uh, you always carry that water filter with you, right? (laughs) For most of you, harvesting rainwater from your roof makes the most sense. If your area gets an average of 18 inches a year, a 1,000 square foot roof can collect over 11,000 gallons of water, depending, of course, on the vessels you have in which to store it. 
And so he does have some pictures here that, uh, like I said, really nice pictures uh, with captions. So it helps you to understand what you're reading. Initially, rainwater collected from your roof is not pure. Bird droppings will defile it. Dirt that's been blown onto the roof will discolor it. And other organic materials will contaminate it. Also, a composition roof will secrete some petroleum-based toxins. So get a metal roof if you can. They're very expensive. But after hard rain of a few minutes duration, I do think a roof is scrubbed pretty clean. And I have drunk such water occasionally with no ill effects. There are also first flush mechanisms to reduce detritus, which add some extra protection to your system by letting the first few minutes of rain drain away, then switching to collection once the roof is clean. And guys, I do recommend that. I know that's something that we're putting up in the in the country, a first flush where um, you know you tie that into your system and then uh, it helps to clean out whatever was there. So I think that's a great idea. A DIY system like mine will cost anywhere from $1 to $2 per gallon of capacity to set up initially. But once it's paid for, there's basically no ongoing maintenance required apart from keeping it clean. My 2,500 gallons of storage in a variety of vessels has cost about $2,500, with the greatest cost being the 1,100 gallon polytank that is the heart of the system. That's sided upslope so I can gravity feed from it to other barrels lower down. And again, uh, there's a lot of pictures uh, where he's pointing out all this information here. The other vessels I have are diverse. Simple 32-gallon trash barrels, 50-gallon sealed storage barrels, a 275-gallon recycled liquid fertilizer tank, a 300-gallon stock watering tank, and an outdoor hot tub that's not regularly in use. Other ideas include an above-ground vinyl swimming pool, which is cheap, and a giant plastic vinyl waterbed-type bladder you can put under your house, which can be pricey. If you feel good about the food you've stored or the backup power you have through a solar solar generating system, I've designed one by the way, you'll feel just as good about the rainwater you have, unless that is you live in parts of Canada or the Pacific Northwest and don't really need it so much. But with climate change, even some of those areas are even getting drier. So being able to store what rain does fall is still a good idea. The best rainwater collection advice comes from an organization in Santa Barbara called Oasis Designs. I've put together a small illustrated booklet with a DVD that references Oasis and other sources for a specialist rainwater system components. For example, a fine metal screen for gutters from Costco that is an absolute must if you have overhanging trees and want to avoid servicing gutters all the time. The booklet also includes the formula for calculating the amount of rain you can collect and the 35 Gorilla Water Savings Tips. Um, so anyway, there is, it costs $20, this little uh, pamphlet that he's put together and, or with the DVD or booklet with the DVD. And he gives the, the address here, P.O. Box 1681, Cambria, California, 93428. The photos reveal much of the hardware needed for a system. You will also need what I call plumber's goop and possibly silicone sealants. Sealant is especially necessary if your system has pumps and is pressurized. Mine isn't. You will need to get up on ladders initially, but when everything is in place, you'll be doing that less frequently, if at all. If you don't feel like doing it yourself, there are contractors who specialize in rainwater harvesting, but it won't be cheap. They are often plumbers and you know how much they charge. But if your goal is to collect rainwater for the rest of your stay at your home, it may be well worth it. 
And I might add that it's easier to install than a gray water system because the output is much more usable. All right, guys, so that's it for this article. And, uh, you know, there's 18 comments here. And, of course, like I said uh, earlier at the beginning of the article, that someone brought up that it is illegal in some areas. So you want to make sure that you check it. And uh, I think they do have a, um, a link here that you can you can go to, to check all this good information out <laughs> of if your state, uh, you know, forbids you to collect rainwater. Again, I just can't, can't even imagine that. But uh, that's the world that we live in. Um, so I think this is one of those things that you should consider. Um, you can do it pretty cheaply. A lot of the times on Craigslist, you know, I found, um, yeah, I, I, there's a couple of projects that I did with 55-gallon drums, but I found some for like $25 on Craigslist. And a lot of the times people find them for a lot cheaper. I know in some places, depending on uh, wherever you, you know, wherever you live, they might be a little bit more expensive. But uh, $25 is not uh, a lot of money for a 55-gallon drum. And then, you know, start using, uh, you know, you, you just pl- kind of plummet. And, and there's things that you can do to uh, a lot of information online to, to be able to, to do that and show you how to do that. And uh, you can have easily, you know, with two barrels, barrels 110 gallons of, of rainwater that you, can, that you can have available for your garden or, uh, you know, for whatever, if it was an emergency situation. So uh, definitely something that you should look into, especially if you're gardening, uh, but also just, you know, that is another resource for you when you're talking about being prepared uh, that that you have available to you. So, uh, gosh, that is uh, one of those things. All right, guys, again, that's like I said, over at askaprepper.com. And uh, like always, I'm going to link to it in the show notes. And uh, there are a lot of uh, great pictures here that kind of uh, helps you to see what he's talking about. And you can see all the things that he uh, mentioned, uh, you know, just very clearly in his his article. So uh, go check that one out. Well, everyone, that is it for episode 314. Hey, don't forget... To subscribe to the show, head on over to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com. That way you never miss another episode of Sweet Prepper Goodness. Hey, and take a moment to connect with me. I have a ton of ways to connect on the show notes and over at theprepperwebsitepodcast.com. And with that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.